You are listening to a White Phosphorus Pictures podcast. Broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another Off to the Witch newsletter. For those of you who are new to Off to the Witch, this is not our regular episode. Every other week, I record an Off to the Witch newsletter. It gives me a chance to be a little more free form, and uh, there's no guest. And usually I talk about what's happening at White Phosphorus Pictures, what's happening with the show, and um, all the other projects that I'm working on. And it gives me a chance to talk about other themes and ideas and just really give my opinion. Uh, The weeks that I have a guest, I I really want to hear from them. And I do my best to get their story for you, uh, to shape it and to ask them proper questions. And it's not really about me at all. In this case, I do have opinions and I have things I'd like to tell you about. One of them is my first novel, Montauk Boys. It is a novel of fiction. Uh, And let me give you a little background on how this whole project began. After making several programs about the alleged Montauk project, and for those of you who don't know, uh, it was, and it's not been proven to this day. However, we've come pretty close. It's just we don't have any real proof of it just yet. But it's an alleged underground, covert, military Uh, operation that is said to have over a course of uh, well over a decade kidnapped and used human subjects for a mind control experiment. Now, even if you don't believe that the Montauk project happened, we have proof of projects that are tantamount to the Montauk project that have happened throughout history, and uh, they're just as horrific. Now, If you were to talk about the other elements that were said to have happened deep in Montauk, I have many speculations about that. And trust me, I've spoken to just about every possible person that you could think of that either said they were involved in this project or oppose it. Um, You know, I traveled to Washington, D.C., spoke to members of the CIA. I even spoke to a U.S. Marshal psychiatrist. I spoke to people like Alan Hornblum, who investigated the... um, Holmesburg prison experiments that were just as horrific and horrendous as anything that happened in, or said to have happened in the Montauk project. So a lot of things get clouded uh, when talking about the Montauk project because people read a few things online or they read some of these flimsy reports or ideas and they assert that they know for sure that there were aliens and reptilians and all kinds of things underneath the ground. Well, Sometimes, and throughout the last decade plus of research that I've done, and all of the people that I've spoken to, and all of the experiences I've had along the way, and the programs I've made for television, and the independent documentary I made, Montauk Chronicles, 
leads me to believe that there is a possibility, okay, outside of the realm of um, extraterrestrials and things like that, that the human experimentation was so horrific that one of the fail-safes they may have put in place for not only the subjects, the kids that were kidnapped, but also some people that worked on the program were to create illusions of things that if any of these witnesses ever talked, if any of these witnesses ever explained their story, and they have, it would sound so outlandish. It would be just like some wacky B science fiction movie that nobody would really believe them. Well, we've come a long way. When I first started covering Montauk, it was like that. There were, weren't many, there were only pockets of people really indulging in the full spectrum of the story. But from the get-go, I did believe, because of what I knew about past experiments, I did believe that it was quite possible that was a location for human experimentation. So through those experiences, I, um, you know, Stephen King had said that you can put so much truth in fiction. And I love that. Uh, literature and fiction are, are such an important thing to me. I and mean, I've been reading and I've been an avid reader all my life. You know, and I've read plenty of biographies um, and I've read history, but I love fiction because fiction also has a truth to it. It's not just the artistry of writing, um, articulating thoughts and the pattern of words. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, literature is so beautiful. But, um, but it's also a way to uh, express truth without restriction. And so I've made my documentaries about Montauk and I've done proper investigations. Um, it wasn't ever from my armchair. I, it was always firsthand experience the entire time. And the movies and, and TV shows uh, show for that. So during the time that I was making those things, it was like a doorway opened up and these characters started coming in because I had, because I met people that claim they were Montauk boys, so to speak. They were kids that were recruited, one of which uh, was James Bruce. That's a fake name that he's using to conceal his identity, but I felt he was very honest. He was never cashing in on anything. It was never about money for him. And he was authentic because I knew a lot of kids like him. I was one of these kids. I grew up, you know, a street kid and hanging out with a bunch of other street kids all night long. And the way James explained his childhood was very similar to my own and my friends. And um, so he said they were looking for the bad kids a lot of the time. They weren't just trying to recruit geniuses. When a lot of the bad kids were actually of higher level intelligence than you would expect, much higher. So these programs were seeking not only these kids because kids that were robbing houses and cars and getting into a lot of trouble at the time, uh, you would have to assume that the heads of these programs would think if these kids ran away and if they disappeared, there wouldn't be many people that missed them because they were always getting in trouble. They were always causing problems. And if you could think on that devious level and, and, and for you to understand a program like this where they're kidnapping people for human experimentation, you must try and get in the head of the people that are doing this. It's very difficult for most of us to do because we don't work at that level of deception. But these 
people, the people that run those programs, do. And if you think about the Tuskegee medical experiments or the Holmesburg prison experiments, it works at that level of deception. It has no remorse. It doesn't care about what you feel or think. It utilizes people and manipulates people for these horrific reasons. And they say it's in the name of science, but uh, they're treating people just like they do kidnapping an animal from the jungle. Um, it's the same perspective. We're doing it for science. So we grab this uh, primate baby from its mother, kill the mother, and we use the primate baby for these horrific, torturous experiments. It's the same exact thing that they're doing with human experiments because no human would volunteer for these things. So that's why they went into prisons. That's why they went into orphanages. They felt, and that's why they took kids from the streets, runaway kids, bad kids. So going with that concept, this is what Montauk Boys is about. Yet it doesn't happen during the time that the alleged Montauk Project happened, which was between the early 70s and the um, early 80s, you know, roughly a 10-year period, a little bit more. And um, it happens a little bit later. Now, I assume, and we didn't know too much about the Jack Pruitt character. Um, he was explained lightly to me. We don't have pictures of him. We don't know that much about him. And so I created, along with Paul Ellers, the actor, in the recreations in my movie Montauk Chronicles, a representation of Jack Pruitt. And Montauk Boys opens with Jack Pruitt retired uh, and contemplating about his life. And I'm, I'm going to read a part of a chapter. I won't read the whole chapter to you because it's a lengthy chapter. And it opens up with Jack Pruitt in his retirement years, about four years after the Montauk Project ended. And it's just before he's recruited again for a second run. And what I'm offering in this story is a man who is no longer shaped by his job, one that he was working at quite a bit. Let's say he... The Montauk Project really happened, and there really was a Jack Pruitt that worked there and, and orchestrated or helped orchestrate all of the happenings underneath the ground and supervised everything, that if he had time to think, to step away from that conditioning, he might begin to regret the mass murder that occurred underneath the base. And if you could think about a man in real life a man with grandchildren, a man with children, a man now back in living as a civilian, retired, with plenty of time to think, he might start to regret what happened. What happened underneath the ground, if it is true, is mass murder. Thousands and thousands of children murdered, tortured, destroyed in the name of science, in the name of government experimentation. Uh, and this man was a major part of it. So the novel opens up with Jack Pruitt retired and thinking about these things, and it's just before he's recruited once again into this new facet of the program. So every chapter in, in Montauk Boys, um, there are quotes. It begins with a quote from a song, and it's the music of the day, uh, and it's also pertaining to, very much, the lyrics pertain very much to the, to the theme of each chapter and the theme of characters. And music is a big thing 
in Montauk Boys, especially when we're introduced to the boys because these are young teens uh, and some a little older in 1987. So their music is heavy metal. Their music is, you know, uh, punk rock, you know, skater rock, all these other things, everything from Black Flag going over to heavy metal to Judas Priest to ACDC. That's the music of the day for them. Uh, there are lyrics to a lot of those songs that precede each of these chapters. Now, um, you know, to obviously get in the mood and to be there with these kids, because it really gets into the, um, the depth and detail of the story when we start meeting the boys. I, I, I you know, I made a playlist of music uh, that you could listen to. It's on Spotify. Just search Montauk Boys. And that entire playlist is what I listen to while writing the bulk of this novel to really get there again, to really be with those kids. And um, once again, um, you know, paraphrasing Stephen King, that there's a lot of truth in fiction. And so there are many things that I personally witnessed written in this book uh, in regard to the boys and things they did. And, and um, obviously a lot of it's fiction too, but I had to assume what the kids before they are being farmed into this thing were going through the way they were being seen by people in the town by adults by parents by other kids that were afraid of them and these aren't the evil kids you know the true evil is what's trying to pull them in these are flawed kids and um, they make mistakes but they're all going through their personal character arcs as well just like jack pruitt is okay so this first chapter and i'll read part of it to you opens up with a song from Phil Collins, In the Air Tonight. And the lyrics are, and this pertains to Jack Pruitt very much, I was there when I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. So you can wipe off that grin. I know where you've been. It's all been a pack of lies. And the name of this chapter is Jack's Retirement Ends. Alone, Jack Pruitt sat silently on the eroding old dock with his fishing rod in hand, Marty, a red-boned coonhound napping by his side. A classical music station playing Chopin's nocturnes on a small radio behind him. And an ice bucket containing a quart-sized GI canteen filled with local cold spring water and several additional glass bottles of Japanese beer. He would assimilate the two beverages between munching on the occasional slice of elk jerky as part of his summer regimen to be sure not to dehydrate or even slightly famish in the occasionally oppressive heat of August. The small lake that he faced was like a coal-black mirror. Jack was mesmerized by the rolling surface ripples reflecting an early afternoon sky of blue and white, bordered by the slow, breezy canopy of palm, pine, and elm above him. In the middle of this parallel universe, in the darkest part, he could see his own reflection, pale skin and long white hair and beard, perpetually distorted, never fully taking shape. You see an old man from a distance or even meet him up close, and most likely your first train of thought is to assume that this nice old fellow is somebody's grandpa. You'll buy his act as he designed it. He appears to have few pretensions. You'll greet him with a smile and most likely an overly polite response to any kind gesture or light-hearted joke he'll attempt to disarm you with. He'll tell you stories about catching a 400-pound marlin in Cape Verde and wrestling with that gargantuan bastard for desperate hours during a raging tempest, as if he was a more successful version of the Santiago character in Hemingway's famous novel. You'll love his stories, because he's an elder with wisdom. He's traveled far and wide, and you aim to live a long life. You aspire to be him. 
one day. You find comfort in his presentation. You haven't seen the devil yet. What most recognize as the devil incarnate is identified in the typical details. The cartoon movie villain. The man in black who glares his reptilian gaze upon you before he slits your throat. But the monster in Grandpa's clothing is more complex than fiction. You don't believe that a nice old man could ever hurt you. I mean, he's just a nice old man, right? Chances are that it's true for most of who he briefly encounters in the benign country store, the post office, and in line at the local movie house. He might lend a good conversation in passing. A nice old man puts people at ease. But what was he before? Did he raise a family? Was he a good dad? Was he always a raconteur who spun elaborate yarns of days gone by? Two-fisted tales of an old warrior just after supper. Kids especially have a voracious appetite for chapters of elder wisdom and their adventures. Because elders can be trusted. Jack had a kind face. A face that you could trust. It's programmed in all of us to be disarmed by a face like Jack's. And he knew it. He knew that most likely you wouldn't question it. He knew a lot about programming. Most of us never question the origins of a kind face. Questions like, did he ever run a business and put himself through college? Maybe he served his country and fought in a war. And what does that really translate to? Did he kill someone? Or a lot of people? Was he good at it? Can you imagine a nice old man plunging a bayonet through a ribcage and piercing the beating heart of another human being? Do you ever contemplate what the reality of murder sounds like? How it actually looks? I suppose it's a clean, legal kill when it comes to combat. If he framed it as a heroic battle during one of those supper stories, would it be okay? Would you forgive his human frailties if he was the hero in the context of defending justice and freedom, much like in those old movies with John Wayne? The music would swell and the bad guys would crumble like tin soldiers, and the Duke would blow his own trumpet, smiling while delivering some corny line like in the movie Jack saw in 68 called The Green Berets. In one scene, hundreds of Viet Cong are instantly obliterated by an AC-47 U.S. plane, otherwise known as Puff the Magic Dragon. It was equipped with 7.62mm miniguns that would fire up to 6,000 rounds per minute. As soon as the bullets ripped through Vietnamese soldiers and their bodies collapsed limp and lifeless in the smoky dirt, Duke smiles to his pals as if he scored a college touchdown and proclaims, I think Puff broke their back, but that's not real life. And that's not how murder of any kind actually happens. Another famous John Wayne line was, A man deserves a second chance, but keep an eye on him. This one was more true to life, but some men you simply cannot accept. Jack Pruitt was and is a mass murderer of men, women, and children. Everyone has their secrets, and Jack hid five times more than the average Joe. He fought in wars, that's for sure, but that's not his hidden truth. He frequently shared battle stories for guests after a hearty meal. The usual was of freshly butchered smoked roasted elk, venison, or wild boar, a side dish of potatoes with rosemary for dessert, and a homemade apple pie with Granny Smith apples from a local orchard. Followed by that, and often around a campfire, he would tell stories past the bedtime of his two grandsons, Travis and Blake. The kids loved the smell of the cherry tobacco from Jack's pipe, his company, his tall tales. They trust that Jack is an old hero. They dreamt that someday they could be just like their grandpa, at least the one in the stories that he told. The truth is that nice old man you see is a ruse, his long white hair and beard resembling knowledge, a life fully lived. In reality, each silver strand contains the DNA of both overt good and the undercurrent of evil, a murky bog of secrets.
So that's just a little part of chapter one in uh, Montauk Boys. And so following that chapter, it goes forward to a couple of years later in 1987, when we meet our main characters. And the kids are written as, as complex characters, all of them, every single one of them, even the ones that have the biggest problems. I think Montauk Boys is an incredible opportunity to see perhaps how these kids were feeling before they were recruited into these programs. Now, it's a bit of an adventure story and it's fiction, so it's going to be entertaining. Um, but I love these characters and um, it's a battle uh, between good and evil, like most great stories. And there is conflict. It's not so black and white. And so to introduce the Pruitt character like this before he's re-recruited in a place where he's been able to sit and think is interesting to me. But I think that the Jack Pruitt that was described to me by real people uh, was kind of cold and distant. And, you know, it made me wonder when Jack separated himself from the program, he must have had kids, grandkids. How did he see his grandkids? These kids were just like the children that were being kidnapped into the Montauk Project or these other projects. It must have affected him. It must have affected anybody that was part of anything like this. They must have had human conflict because humans aren't robots. And they, you know, I mean, psychopaths have a different perspective on life. They think what they're doing is okay and they justify it at every turn uh, or they hide it uh, because it's some kind of addiction. But normal people, uh, whether it be in necessary things in life, and in a lot of cases, whether it be the military or law enforcement, eventually might have to kill someone. And most of us dismiss what they go through. A lot of that post-traumatic stress is from having to go and murder. A lot of that post-traumatic stress that you see in law enforcement or the military are because they went against something that they normally wouldn't have done and that they had to to survive or they had to as part of their duty. So, but they're still human. So I treat most of the characters in Montauk Boys as human beings. However, I think there are psychopaths and sociopaths at very high levels of government and, um, and deep operatives. And of course, it would be easier to, you know, intelligence communities would recruit people like that. Now, these are higher level thinkers. These are intelligent sociopaths. These are intelligent psychopaths. Um, wouldn't it behoove the people in charge to hire people that would have no regret? There's another level of this, whereas programming and conditioning, the programming wasn't just on the subjects. It was also people that worked for these hidden operations because you must have to program people to work within these circles. They would be slowly integrated, I'm sure. They would be told in many ways, well, this is for science, and now we have these human volunteers. They would be told in many cases that um, this is a, a project that's going to save the world and we have to do this. There are so many lies in a program like this that perhaps many of the people that were recruited to work on it uh, were, um, it was unbeknownst to them, the details until they witnessed it. Then they were part of it. They were forced to be a part of it. So I've considered all of the above. It's the only way you're ever truly going to understand a project like this. 
There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it, what would you tell them? I did approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. This, this fictional story is a way to get inside the mind of not only the people that are dealing with it, the subjects, people that are kidnapped into it, but also people that are operating within it as well. And, um, you know, it just came to life like any story that comes to me. Montauk Boys came to life. A little history on the, um, the background of this is that it started with me uh, writing a screenplay. And it was optioned for a little while as well uh, to become a television miniseries. Most likely, I'm thinking, because of the work I'm doing now on a separate uh, limited series for network TV, that by the time Montauk Boys comes out as a novel, which will be towards the end of this year, that um, I'll have another opportunity to to shape this into a, a television miniseries. And I would like to, as long as there's the freedom to tell the story as I wrote it. Uh, otherwise, I'd be happy to make it into a series of movies or just continue. 
the way this first book ends leads us into another chapter for sure. And I'll probably start writing that next year sometime. But I'm excited to share this with you. I, I feel like so much more could be understood through fiction. And, um, you know, a little bit on my background, I, you know, I graduated uh, from film school in the year 2000. And the four years full time that I spent in film school, for a lot of people that don't know what your education is like, well, first of all, it was accredited college. Second, I took tons of writing courses, took tons of screenwriting courses, literature courses. You know, we, we couldn't achieve a degree otherwise. We had to take all of this stuff. I was an avid reader when I was a kid, but it wasn't until I was really in film school that my mind opened up to a cosmos of literature. Uh, and so I was, at that time, and like I still do, I was reading people, everybody from uh, James Dickey to... Um, William Burroughs, to Jack Kerouac, to Hunter S. Thompson, um, to Edward Bunker. You know, I loved all of those writers and I devoured their work. I obviously am a lifelong reader of Stephen King as well and classic writers, everybody from Edgar Allan Poe to H.P. Lovecraft to H.G. Wells. I love literature and I always wanted to write a book. And after all this time, after writing several screenplays and writing for a lot of other short form projects and, and also writing the, the, the Montauk Boys screenplay for a television miniseries that I felt, and you have to start from square one again, even though I knew the story and the screenplay was, was uh, forged as a story, there's no button that you can hit to transfer your script into a novel. You literally have to start with a blank page and even though I knew the story I had already written, how things would play out, you still have to rewrite the whole thing from beginning to end. And um, uh, these are exciting characters to me. And I, I truly look forward to sharing it with everybody. Um, like I had mentioned before, music is a huge thing in this story. And I was reading an article one day in a magazine and they were talking to authors. It was a writing magazine. And they were saying, you know, you want to put a soundtrack out for your novel, you know, to get people in the mood because they can't, you know, you, you're reading. Um, but what's, what does it sound like? What's the music like in this, in this world? And music is such an important thing. It's almost like every character has their own music. You know, uh, Jack Pruitt, even in the recreations in Montauk Chronicles, was listening to a, a variety of classical music because that's what his character was. But the main characters, which you'll meet after the end of this chapter that I read a part of, um, their music is of the day, and it's uh, a lot of rock and roll, heavy metal, punk rock, and it brings you into that world, like I'd said earlier. And so if you want to um, listen to a, an awesome playlist of music that's totally what I was absorbed in uh, while writing this, uh, you can go to Spotify and just search Montauk Boys, and it'll come up. It'll say Montauk Boys Novel Soundtrack. Once it comes out, it'll probably be more fun, but it's still a cool collection of music to listen to. I've I've heard a few people ask me why not write a a book about what really happened. Well, I did that already. I did that in several documentaries because that's as close as to what really happened as we could discover about the Montauk Project. I am working on some kind of follow-up to that called Time Forward Back. 
and it will be in a, a short documentary form, but also it will be accompanied by a coffee table book of my entire experience with everything Montauk related and, you know, solidifying in this final story that I'm writing as fiction. However, there's a lot of truth embedded deep into this. Um, tons of research went into Montauk Boys to get things right. Um, and it's, it's all of my research over many years, personal experience in life. There's so much truth in this novel, um, even though it is fiction. And I think it's a great way to dive deeper into the psyche of people who were used in something like this, the people who are working on it, the darker forces behind it all. It's all there. It's all in this. And um, I felt it necessary to write as fiction because I can sit and declare that I, I know certain things, but we don't. Trust me, I got very close to this. I spoke to everybody involved. I mean, I personally sat with Al Bielek and Preston Nichols and James Bruce and Stuart Swerdlow and all of these people that claimed they were part of it, plus a ton of other people after that and spoke to government officials and, you know, over, man, over almost two decades. I started in 06. I started researching the Montauk Project in 06, doing serious research, talking to people. That's when I first spoke to Al Bielek and Preston Nichols firsthand, you know, went to their homes, spoke with them. Um, and what I've learned along the way is that even though this is difficult to prove, I think with a few actions that people could prove that it happened. And obviously, there is plenty of evidence to show that something happened at that base. Now, you have people that were working topside during that time. Well, that's part of the ruse um, because they wanted the, the people who were stationed there to think it was just this relaxed base and nothing was going on. However, underneath the ground, which had a separate entrance, and perhaps there was a top secret entrance at the base where only few knew how to access it, but the people that claim they worked in the deep Montauk facility underneath the ground, and this is a misconception with a lot of people, they claim they entered through Brookhaven Labs, and there was an underground transport that led to the base. That could have been the case, and that could have been why some people that were stationed at the base itself claim nothing happened. Well, that's their reality. They're not lying. Nothing happened because they weren't involved in anything. And whoever, if this project is true, whoever was running it knew that. They knew that there would be men kind of relaxing, you know, I mean, near R&R &R at all times over at the base at Montauk because there were very lax operations going on. So if anyone down the road said, was there a secret program at the Camp Hero Air Force Station? They would say, not a chance. I remember just hanging out. We were bored. Of course. What a way to conceal something that's going on far underneath the ground, unbeknownst to these people up, up top. So, and I'm sure that's happened elsewhere too, in many cases, even in towns. No, there's nothing odd happening here. I've been here all my life. Well, how would you know? How would you know that something's not happening beneath the ground? You know, they wouldn't. There's not a chance of it. And that's essentially 
you know, one analogy that I use is that all of these serial killers, like let's say John Wayne Gacy, for instance, was living next door in a nice little suburban environment. And he's strangling people in his bathtub and dismembering them and doing horrible, atrocious things and burying their bodies underneath the house. And this was going on for years. People didn't notice, even people in the house, he was living with his two daughters, his mother and his wife. He was getting away with murder, literally. He was a monster. And so what I'm saying is, a covert government facility could be underneath the ground as we speak at this moment, and you wouldn't even know about it. You know, some people ask, well, how, how is this deception possible? It's possible because you were conditioned to not believe it and that the villains are in your ear. So whether they be politicians, whether they be celebrities, whether they be someone posing as your friend, in a lot of cases, that person is the villain. They're constantly in your ear and constantly shaping your perspective and making sure you don't fall off. So the Montauk Boys in the story, uh, which is a gang, it's a gang of kids in 1987 in the suburbs of New York City. And there were a lot of gangs, a lot of tribes of kids, a lot of fights, crime, and it was said that it was kids like this and a variety of them that were recruited for the project. So they are recruited under false pretenses in the story. It's supposed to be a, um, a second chance program, you know, for juvenile delinquents. And what it really is, is a screening purgatory. It's a place where they start to analyze with their paid psychiatrists who know exactly what they're doing, start to analyze each of the recruited boys. And it's supposed to be this kind of juvenile last chance program. And these kids are all on the edge of being either expelled or arrested or going into a juvenile detention center because they do things. They sell drugs, they steal, they fight. Um, but once again, they're not evil kids. And what happens in our prisons. What happens when these kids go away? And we have examples throughout history of there being a much more covert operation going on. That, for instance, in the Holmesburg prison experiments, these prisoners were doing exactly what the Montauk boys were doing in my story. And one by one, they're taken to jail, all right? Respectively, if you commit a crime, you, you rob, you assault someone, you should go to jail. But are the jails, the orphanages, the juvenile detention centers, hunting grounds, essentially, uh, are, they, are they cattle farms for human experimentation? And it has been proven several times now throughout history, modern history, that that is very much the truth, that these places were recruitment centers for human experimentation. And any of you who are interested in learning the truth, you can get a book by Alan Hornblum called Acres of Skin. You can read archives of information in regard to MKUltra, the Tuskegee medical experiments, 
This is the way that cold, dark, clinical, deep government brain thinks. And this is how they see us. And so if you start to realize that the people who are walking in front of you, politicians with a smile, are well aware of these things that have happened throughout history, and sometimes they have to save face and apologize like Bill Clinton did in the 90s and say, well, this wasn't us. This is an old, archaic, out-of-touch government that's no longer us. But we have proof that it happened after that, too. <laughs> and so can you trust these people? Absolutely not. They've shown you every reason why you can't trust them. Time and time again, you simply cannot trust them. You have to question anybody who's constantly in your ear. Like I said, if, if it's collectively all of us that we're being told, go back to sleep, everything's okay, we've got this, we're here for your best interest, that's immediately a trigger for me to back off and watch and analyze and take another perspective to take another look at what's going on. Even though Montauk Boys is a fictional tale, all of this personal observation, philosophy, many facts are within the threads of the story and, and what the characters are going through. And uh, so it's very important to me, this, this book and story. And yes, it's, you know, it's a genre story. It could be considered horror or um, the, the one thing, I don't know if it's going to disappoint anybody, but I do have a perspective on the alien stuff and all the other experimentation. And it is slightly alluded to. I'm not writing Stranger Things, so it's not, um, it's not like that. It does go into cerebral territories. It does assume that perhaps some of these things were staged, that the alien stuff during that program was staged. Um, just in case there were any witnesses, they would come and blather a, a, a tall tale, at least at that time. you know. Now everybody's listening to each other about the, the alien stuff. But again, anything that's being put out the, by the government, I wouldn't dance for joy. I wouldn't celebrate it. You couldn't trust them before. What makes you think you can trust them now? So there's so much to talk about and question. And I think the best vessel for this discussion and these ideas that I have, uh, after all this observation, after all this research, is in a, a work of fiction. It's also a safe place for me because I'm not officially calling out any governments. I'm not saying anything in particular, and I can put whatever I want in this book. It's um, free reign, but it's very carefully thought out, and um, I have a lot to say with Montauk Boys, so I look forward to releasing it, and you'll hear more about it as we go forward in the coming months. Um, so I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight, and um, I have to get back to work. There is so much to accomplish, and I will return next week with a brand new episode and a brand new guest. And I will see you next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.